Hello, and welcome back to 1A, a podcast from First Presbyterian Church of Columbia, South Carolina. 1A is designed to take a brief but in-depth look at counseling issues from a pastoral perspective. Reverend Squires is the pastor of counseling here at First Presbyterian Church, and I'm Josh Fleming, the pastoral intern for Discipleship. In today's episode, we begin discussing chapter 6 of the Westminster Confession of Faith, and we'll be considering how the original sin of Adam and Eve influences all humanity. If you have any comments or questions about our show, please don't hesitate to contact us. You can email us at 1A, that's the number one, the letter A, at firstprescolumbia.org. We hope this ministry is a blessing to you and to those around you. Let's get to the conversation. Welcome back to 1A. I'm your host, Josh Squires, and we're down to Josh today. Boo. I know. Right. So we've got Josh Fleming with me. Thanks. I'm glad to be here, representing the Joshes. That's right, other than the you, Squires. That's, that's yeah. right. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, we're missing a dare, of course, and then we have Mark Capper. Mark, thanks for being with us. Hey, guys. So glad to be with you again. Okay, Josh, why don't you tell us where yeah. we're picking up this time? Fantastic. We're taking a look today at Chapter 6 of the Westminster Confession of Faith. But in order to take a look at that, we want to actually jump back. And we referenced this in one of our previous episodes that we skipped a section in Chapter 5. And I want to read that now. And it kind of provides sort of, it sort of lays the foundation for the discussion we'll be having here in Chapter 6. If you'll remember, Chapter 5 was on God's providence. So listen to this. This is, this is Section 4 of Chapter 5. And what we're going to see is, is God's providence extends even over the fall, even over sin. But just, just let's listen to this. The almighty power, unsearchable wisdom, and infinite goodness of God so far manifest themselves in his providence that it extendeth itself even to the first fall and all other sins of angels and men, and that not by a bare permission, but such as hath joined with it a most wise and powerful bounding, and otherwise ordering and governing of them in a manifold dispensation to his own holy ends. Yet, so as the sinfulness thereof proceedeth only from the creature and not from God, who, being most holy and righteous, neither is nor can be the author or approver of sin." That's a lot. That is a lot. It's yep. a big section. <laughs> yep. There's a reason why we <laughs> skipped get over it. it. And and I think the best thing for us to do here is maybe just get the big thirty thousand foot right, overview right, of right. this and then and then we'll we'll dive more into it as we get into chapter six. But this is trying to tell us and put together a couple of threads. And one is is that God didn't just look out and see that sin might happen and say, okay, I'm going to allow it. Right. He, like all of his acts of providence, did choose that that should happen. Mm. So you're trying to guard his power, his sovereignty, and his knowledge in all acts right. here in creation. And at the same time, they give you the caveat, he can't be the author of sin. Right. Mm -hmm. So though he powerfully decides that sin should come in and that people should sin, he's not the author of it. Yeah. Mm. Now, what does that mean? And I think this is where, like Derek, we just go, <laughs> uh -huh. Like, I, I'm not entirely sure how all of those things come together right. mm. other than Scripture tells me they do. 
Right. Know? And I must affirm what Scripture tells me. Mm-hmm. That, and that's, I think it's really helpful just noting that. That's what the divines are doing themselves. They're not necessarily trying to give us this experience explanation of how this works mm-hmm. that's right they're just saying here hey the bible says this and the bible says that yep and i believe the bible and yeah. so if it's if it's a little bit hard for me to understand wrap my mind around i'm sticking with scripture yeah well that's great i, I feel like maybe those of you listening hopefully that didn't confuse or muddle the waters mm-hmm. too much but now we do want to go ahead and jump into chapter six yep chapter six is titled of the fall of man of sin and of the punishment thereof so we'll be talking a little bit about sin this may not be the most comfortable uh topic for us to discuss i was joking with josh and mark here a minute ago this is this is something that i really feel like i know a lot about so i'm kind of like oh i can really contribute to the whole sin discussion. <laughs> right. yeah. i've been doing this since i was born y'all yes. here we go um <laughs> but all joking aside let, let's take a look section one i'll just read it and we'll get going here with some discussion it says our first parents being seduced by the subtlety and temptation of satan sinned in eating the forbidden fruit this their sin god was pleased according to his wise and holy counsel to permit having purpose to order it to his own glory so that's our, our statement for section one. Gets in the idea of original sin, our first parents, mm-hmm. and it, a little bit of that interaction with, with God and how that first sin worked. What are your thoughts on this section, guys? There are a couple of thoughts that I have as I look at this particular section. One, this is a little bit in the weeds for just a second. Let me drop down and then pull out just to note how the divines are doing something. They're approaching a particular debate that most people aren't even aware of and do it in a way that actually encourages unity and not division. Mm. So there's a debate that's going on that, again, unless you've gone to seminary, you, you probably don't know a bunch about, and it's called the Lapsarian debate. And there's infra and supra. Lapsarian is just the fall. And so when... In the order of God's decrees, did he decree that man would fall, that there would be elect and that there would be reprobate? And so supralapsarians, in the order of the decrees, make that first, and then creation and then fall, versus infra would say, no, there's a decree to uh, create and then fall, and then to elect some and allow others to be reprobate. And there are various reasons why you might be on one side or the other of this. And people hold these positions hotly, especially if you've done a lot of work trying to understand the various character attributes of God, his omniscience Mm. and his omnipotence, his justice and his holiness, his love and his compassion. So the first one tends to emphasize his omniscience and his justice. The second tends to emphasize his love and his compassion. And this was as hotly debated back at that time for the divines as it would be for any of the seminarians now that would even know about this debate. Why is that important? Well, it's important because it doesn't put a flag somewhere. It, it, they didn't decide to push this into the place where they had to make an infra or supra mm. declaration. They're allowing it to be as kind of bare bones on this as possible in order for there to be unity and also for there to be difference. Mm. And I think that's actually really important in today's society where we want to push everyone into this place where they've got to declare where they are and they are either for me or they are against me. Mm. And there's no degree of difference where you can say, okay, you're to the right or to the left of me on this issue, but you and I are actually a part of the same community, and that's okay. 
everyone wants everyone else to be exactly like them. And we're pushing people to be exactly like us in all their opinions in order to feel safe. And that's not what the divines do here. That's why yeah. this is such a majestic document mm. is because there, there allows enough flexibility that people who are genuinely of the Reformed faith, though they may be different on a couple of issues here or there, everyone can subscribe to it. So there's a winsomeness here, even in yeah. this section, that I just want to commend them for. Mm. And then just from a counseling perspective, commend in us more. <laughs> yes. Right, that we might have that same sort of humility and winsomeness and allow for that sort of general difference without it having to be something that causes us to divide. That's good. I mean, how often do we sit in rooms where we have people with differing opinions and we say, we can come to a compromise on this. Actually, we can write something that we all, even on this very topic that we disagree on, we can we can craft it such that we can all agree. That's right. And when it's an issue of theology or scripture, it's hard for people to make compromise like this. Mm-hmm. Right, like, oh no, I read scripture here and it says these three that would support my opinion mm. and these three that would support mine. It's so easy to get sideways. And instead, for them to find ways to say, let's take what's at the center of both positions, the place where we can say we have agreement and unity, and let's just put that in. That, that's actually very winsome of them. So I just wanted to mention that just by way of like, I think the way they're doing things organically to create this document, we need to apply to our hearts. Mm. Now let's look at the content some. So our first parents being seduced by the subtlety and temptation of Satan. That continues to this day. Mm. People need to understand the subtlety of Satan and how he tends to tempt people. And in the same way that he does with our first parents, he doesn't come out with just a bald-faced lie. Mm. Right. Those are so easy for us to detect. He doesn't say, for example, God hates you. They know that God doesn't hate them. He Mm. chooses to walk with them. He's been kind. He's given them everything else to eat. He has chosen to be in fellowship with them created Eve for Adam in order to minister to him and to show him his loneliness and his necessity of a help meet. And Adam having that first love poetry the moment he sees Eve, Mm -hmm. right? That sort of lie would have been easily detected. Instead, he tries to take God's word and to twist it in a way that then begins to subtly undermine our ability to trust God in difficult things. Right. Mm. Right. That is how he continues to work in all of our hearts, even today, is he tries to say, you can't trust the Lord to provide for you here. When he tells you to do something hard, which God's law is hard. Mm. Yeah, it is. It's hard to be a Christian who lives up to our call as brothers and sisters in Christ, as parents, as spouses, as workers, and to try and reflect something of the perfect nature of our Lord and Savior. It's impossible. Mm. And and what Satan wants to do is he wants to whisper that that difficulty is there out of some sense of maliciousness mm. or negligence. Mm. And that's just not true. Yeah. It's there out of love. Yeah. Satan is the accuser, and he wants not only to accuse us of our sin, but to us he wants to accuse God of being less than what he truly is. Yeah. which is good and loving and just and righteous. And we so easily buy into his lies because they seem like truth, because mm. they contain yeah. this kernel of truth. Yeah. yeah. So I often tell people that they need to have like sulfur detectors, you know, like a smoke detector. <laughs> you have a sulfur detector that's the lies from the pit of hell. 
Hmm. And and you need to have really fine sulfur detectors that can say, okay, this might be 90% truth, but it's the 10% lie right. that will ultimately lead me to a path of destruction. Hmm. Right. And so the more and more our, our scent can get to the point where, ooh, I know this is a lie of Satan. How do you do that? How do you refine that sulfur detector? How do you refine knowing what is a lie versus what is truth? It's got to be God's word. Right. Mm. It's got to be spending time in the word that tells you and is your corrective and sets the lens for you, mm. like using Calvin's language of the spectacles of Scripture, right. Right. that helps you more know what is truth and mm. what is lie. This reminds me a little bit of Job and his three friends because when we read a lot of what his friends actually say, there there seems to be some good. And, oh, there's, yeah, and, there's the same as like theological truth here. Yeah, yeah, yeah like you, good you did affirm right, this. Yeah, yeah, yeah some yeah. semblance of good and right theology in what they say. But we get the picture into heaven that Job doesn't get at the beginning of the book that no, actually Satan at least brought about the destruction of his crops and the death of his children. And is it too much to assume that maybe Satan has a hand even in in the advice that these friends are giving? That though there is some semblance of, of right theology, that there is a wrong application of it. And even an abuse of these truths of God in Job's life because they are not applicable to what's going on. The, yeah. These aren't happening as a result of his sin, but they are happening out of living in a fallen world. That's yeah. a great point. I, I remember reading in uh, Edward's Religious Affections, and he mentions how Satan can even use the scripture, like, mm-hmm. like and he gives the example of, of Christ being tempted. And so just because even a, a passage comes to your mind at times, and whatever purpose it may fill in that moment, even that, we have to be careful but it's interesting, like what you were saying about how the subtlety of, of Satan's temptation and how he impugned God's character and made him yeah. seem restrictive or malicious. And we all fall for that a lot. But I mean, ultimately, the truth is God's law is good for us. I mean, yeah. and, and we mm-hmm. our experience, I think, teaches us that. Yeah. Anytime we've sinned, I mean, we feel guilt mm-hmm. and shame. Mm-hmm. You know, I don't, I don't know of one person who does something they know to be wrong and then afterwards feels good about it and says, oh, it's great. I'm going to schedule some time to do that later in the week. Or, you know, it's like, yeah. no, you feel terrible about it. And, mm. and following God's law is actually for your good. The illustration sometimes I use here is that as a parent, you have rules for your children that restrict them from doing things, not out of maliciousness, but out of safety. Mm. So when you tell your child, do not play in the street. You're not doing that because you're trying to withhold the sweetness of street playing time. The joy (laughs) of being in the street. Yeah. Yeah. You're saying that because there are very dangerous vehicles that travel Mm. that road driven by people who are more and more increasingly distracted. Right. Mm. And you are wanting to keep them safe. Exactly. Right. So I am withholding something from you out of love for you and for your safety. But they're too young to really understand. Mm Mm-hmm. They can't comprehend that that zone that you have placed off limits is a danger to them. Mm. All they see is that blacktop (laughs) (laughs) and how smooth it is and how wonderful it would be to bounce a ball or run up and down Mm. or play tag or whatever it is. And they can experience you as malicious and mean and withholding because you're not giving to them something that they see as pleasurable and enjoyable. And in that moment, there's no car. There's nothing coming. That's right. It's just something that I could use to have fun, and you seem to be withholding it from me. Mm, yeah. Right? 
There, there's something about the omniscience of God that he tells us how it is that we are to live for our betterment, that we must trust him in the way that my children must trust me when I tell them this is not for your good. Right. Mm. Mm. Even when it looks okay, it looks like a clear, blacktop, smooth space. You may not see the reason why this is bad, but it requires faith and trust in a person who you believe to have your best interest in mind. And children may even pursue that and experience what appears to be their parents' wrath at them <laughs> through loudly shouting, stop, yeah, you yeah. know, if they are running toward the street. Yeah. And um, But what appears to be anger yeah. and wrath really is a, <laughs> a call to warning that, yeah. no, there is danger coming. Yeah. Um, don't run into the street. Mm-hmm. Um, I, am, I am here for you. I am loving you. I am protecting you by yelling at you, yeah. by seeming angry, but I'm yeah. not angry. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not against you. I'm for you. Mm-hmm. What can, by one perspective, that which seems malicious is actually beneficent. Mm. it's actually for your good. And we just have to keep that in the foreground when we think about God's word in our own life. Now, let me, let me ask this question. When we get to this section that our first parents being seduced by the subtlety temptation of sin of Satan sinned full stop. Let's just stop right there. Mm -hmm. Does that shock you? I think the answer is no. Yeah. If I'm honest, right? I don't think it shocks me. Mm -hmm. And I think the degree to which it doesn't shock me shows the remaining sin in my own heart. Because mm. think about what God has done up to this point. What has he done? He has said, I am for you. I'm going to give you, think about this job description. I may have said it before on, a, on another episode. Here's the job description. I want you to have authority, ownership, and rule over all things. I want you to eat everything that you see that is pleasing to the eye and to the touch and to the taste except this one thing. And I want you to go out and have a bunch of sex so that you can procreate and fill the world. That's your job description. Who doesn't say sign me up for that? (laughs) Okay. And then he chooses to come into fellowship with them. He doesn't even just set them down and say, do this. I'm gone. I'm going back to heaven, wherever that is outside the material realm. You guys have it from here. He chooses out of love to accommodate himself to come into creation and to spend time with this creature. Mm. There is nothing more beautiful and wonderful than what God does for his creation before the fall. And I think it should shock us. Mm. I mean, absolutely shock us when we read that they believed Satan. Mm. There is nothing about their experience to that point that should make them think that Satan was right. Mm, right. Mm. And they were unfallen mm. at that point. And the degree to which it just makes sense, of course. Of course they mistrust God. Of course they believed Satan. Of course they ate the fruit. If I was told not to eat the one thing, that's probably what I would do too. Yeah. <laughs> right? I think is the point to which it reveals yeah. that rebellion and sin still lives inside me. This, this should shock us. That's a helpful way of thinking about that. All right. Y'all ready to move on to uh, section number two? Yeah. I'll, t- I'll give a read here. It says, By this sin they fell from their original righteousness in communion with God, and so became dead in sin and wholly defiled in all the faculties and parts of soul and body. So now we're kind of getting into the, the results of that first sin. 
what we might call total depravity. That That's what we're beginning to get into. And that's an issue of breadth, not depth. Right. Yeah. We're not as sinful as we possibly could be. Right, right. We're not all serial killers or Hitler right. or whatever. And it's okay to say Hitler was bad and wrong. But it's to say that every single part of us is affected by the fall. There's no part of our soul, part of our being, a part of our body that is not affected by this. Mm-hmm. Uh, why is that important? Well, because it sets up later that you and I could not have chosen God on our own. Right. Mm-hmm. There's no part of us that's reserved that could make that good decision. Every single part of us is now fallen. Interestingly, they also say the faculties of soul and body. That word faculties just shows that they're working from their 17th century understanding of the person and that therefore faculties are just different pieces, but soul and body, that our body is languishing under the fall. Mm -hmm. Now, that has actually huge implications for counseling, that our body is affected by the fall. Yeah, absolutely. Well, that means that there are things that happen in our bodies where not because of moral evil, I didn't choose this, but because of natural evil, my body is languishing And therefore, something like medicine might help. Mm. Mm -hmm. Let me give you a great example, and it's me. I'm a type 1 diabetic. Mm -hmm. have been since I was 9 years old, and as far as I know, there wasn't some sinful choice that I made when I was 9 that yielded my pancreas to stop making insulin. As far as I know. It's a genetic thing. It's an environmental thing. Things come together in a way that we still don't quite fully understand. Mm. And then all of a sudden now, my body doesn't produce insulin. When my blood sugar is high, which happens daily, multiple times a day, hopefully not for long, but it it does happen, I am never more cranky, more angry (laughs) than when my blood sugar is high. Mm. My wife knows this, right? And so oftentimes if I'm kind of cranky, she might ask me... Hey, what's what's your blood sugar doing what's right now? Old? You don't don't you don't know. No, like, I'm really legitimately mad right now. Don't bring up my diabetes. What's right? that number looking like? What's yeah, yeah. That? And then and then I slowly check, you know, and it's like in the two hundreds. You know, you you don't know. This is a real issue. That's right. I'm really really mad that someone parked Caddy Wampus. You know, and that's a really big deal. And so the Lord, by his grace, has put me in a time where I can use synthetic insulin to help get my blood sugar back down, that I may act in a way that more and more is righteous and displays the character of Christ to my wife and my children and to those around. Mm. Right? That's an effect of the fall on my body. Now, take that to something like depression or anxiety. Not all depression or anxiety is medical and comes from medical space, but some of it is. And therefore, the idea that you could use some sort of medical intervention to help a fallen brain, the brain chemistry, the actual what is going on in neurons and dendrites and the neuronal gap and all of that, you can use medicine. Not because you willfully or willingly chose to be depressed, but because of the fall, somehow your brain is languishing. That's okay. Yeah. Right? It's okay to use those sort of interventions to help you recover, but it should help you recover your identity and your resources as a Christian who is able to more fully serve the kingdom. Mm. Yeah. 
not just for your own ends that you might feel happy right. or more satisfied, but that you might recover resources deployed for the kingdom. And that's okay. Right. Mm-hmm. And though they had no idea, <laughs> they had no idea about neurology, right? The Westminster divines yet here they can make a statement about the depth of the fall and its effects on our biology that is very applicable to where you and I are today and helping people as they think through this, can I even, is it righteous for me to take an antidepressant or am I just covering up sin? Mm-hmm. Right? Like, well, I don't know, but but we can try right. and we can see. And does it help you recover you and help you deploy yourself more in the kingdom? Okay. Mm. Yeah. Well, if there's something I can take that takes me five seconds to take once a day that helps me to be more the kingdom servant I'm called to be, mm. I'm going to do that. Yeah. yeah. Right. And, and hopefully I can come off at some point. Mm. Right. I can get all the resources I need in place that I can do those things without the aid of medicine. But some people can't. Some people's neurobiology is so fallen that they need it as a, as a maintenance medicine, as I need insulin as a maintenance medicine. Mm. Mm. Okay. Fine. I'm glad we live in a place where we can do that. Absolutely. Yeah. So they're recognizing here that we're, we're composite holes. We're, we're, we're not. And so what you said a moment ago, yep. sin is affecting every aspect of our being, our existence. So we, maybe we shouldn't be surprised. You know, it's the soul and body. Yep. And I think this reminds me of David mm-hmm. after committing sin and languishing. He, he talks about the effect, his bones, he feels it yep. in his body. Yeah. I think that's something we can probably all identify with on some level is yep. that sin and its consequences, um, it, it's not just a religious, spiritual matter. And so that when we're dealing with one another and the problems that we face in life, there's yep. we have this knowledge of like, well, it's actually impacting all of us yep. completely mm, yeah. in some level. So yep. this this kind of equips us maybe as we deal with people and they're presenting problems and the symptoms maybe don't sound like a, a sin issue right off the bat, but maybe the question should be asked. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Um, yeah. The other thing that I want to say here is it's, it's soul and body. Right. So it's not just moral, but it also would have been the seat of the mind mm. would have been in view here. So when we think of something like the noetic effect of sin, mm-hmm. What do we mean? That's a fancy way of saying that sin affects the mind. Mm. Mm. That there are people who are unregenerate, who can't possibly understand the truth of Scripture because sin has so muddled their mind that they don't see the logic of it. They don't see the Mm. truth of it. And that when we are redeemed, that there is something that we're able to see more of the truth and the logic of the universe and the one who made it. Mm. Not completely, um, it, it, the noetic effect of sin is not completely removed when we are regenerate. Right. But all of a sudden we are able to more appropriately and, and completely understand yeah. the movement of history, mm. the maker of all things and the purpose for which we are created. Yeah. Right. And the noetic effect on our minds, even as we're regenerate, sometimes means we don't completely comprehend that which we should comprehend. There's a reason why one of my favorite verses in Romans 8 is is that the Holy Spirit intervenes for us in groanings too deep for words. Right. In other words, he prays for us in the ways we would have prayed if we had known better. Yeah. Wow. That's, that's not for unbelievers. That's for believers. Right. Mm. Right. And if the noetic effect of the fall weren't affecting my mind, I would pray as I know that I should pray. Right. 
Mm. Just probably a lot less selfishly. (laughs) And a lot more God glorifyingly, Mm. if that's a A verb that Mm. I could just make up. Yeah. So. And even that verse, I think, is such a comforting truth as well that, you know, I was in a group of guys a few weeks ago that just so happened that we decided to go around the circle and pray. And it was about a half hour later, and one of the guys made a comment that, oh, I mean, I'm glad I could pray, but my prayer wasn't as good as you theologians. And I just responded to that, and I said, well, brother, thankfully, all of our prayers are imperfect, and it's Jesus who mm. stands before his Father, and he's the one who takes all of our prayers mm. and, and makes them right before him. You know, just to, to take away the comparison game there, yeah. that, you know, we all, whatever fancy terms we know or things like that, we all pray imperfectly, but Jesus is interceding for us before the Father, and he gives us his Holy Spirit who, yeah, the, the Holy Spirit is is crying out with groanings too deep for words. He is the one who sanctifies our prayers Mm. and and makes them right before the Father. We're already over 30 minutes, but I just want to make, and I thought, I, Fleming, I thought for sure we might make it all the way through (laughs) this chapter. We didn't even have a dare on here, and we still only made it. Sometimes we can, be, we can be so like positive thinking what we're going to actually accomplish yeah. when we start talking to this. Yeah. But yeah, but there's one more thing I just want to, I just want to point out and that is what is sin's effect? It's that they fell from their original righteousness and communion with God. Mm. Sin separates. Yeah. That's what it does. Just like you were saying earlier, it always whispers in your ear. I will fulfill and satisfy. Think about the last thing you did that you knew was sinful, Mm. if it's lust, if it's laziness, if it's gluttony, if it's power, if it's gossip, you knew that this was against God's word. And something in your heart and mind listened to that lie from Satan, this will make you feel better Mm. and whole. Mm. Right? It will actually create closeness and completeness. Mm. And it never does. It doesn't do it. All it does is tear us under and leave you isolated and lonely. Mm. That's all sin ever does. Sin never pays on its promises. The gospel always does. Amen. Absolutely. All right. Well, that seems like as good a place for us to wrap up. Yeah. To our listeners, if you have any questions about sin, uh, let us know. We're experts. (laughs) (laughs) We are Um, experts in sin. You can get to us 1A at firstprezcolumbia.org. That's the number one, the letter A, at firstprezcolumbia.org. We'd be happy to answer any questions that you have. Next time, we'll continue our way through chapter six. We'll We'll begin to hear about how sin affects not only the world, but how it is transmitted and how it affects even those who are believers. For Josh Fleming, for Mark Capper, I'm Josh Squires. Thanks for listening to 1A. We'll talk to you next time. And until then, God bless.